0: And now, more educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our continuing discussion of the importance of movement. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. My next guest for this episode, Wendy L. Ostroff, is a cognitive scientist and developmental psychologist and the author of the book, Understanding How Young Children Learn, Bringing the Science of Child Development to the Classroom. She is a professor in the Hutchins School of Liberal Studies at Sonoma State University, where she designs and teaches cutting edge curriculum for pre-service teachers. Wendy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Uh, Wendy, first and foremost, what is cognitive science?
1: Cognitive science is the study of what happens in our minds. It's the study of cognition, learning, and thought. And um, it's a science. And so a lot of the research that we cognitive scientists do occurs in the lab um, and testing out theories and hypotheses About how learning actually happens from the level of the neuron up through the level of behavior.
0: Wow. And I'm, and me personally, I'm a fan of the science because more often than not, when you get the results, it's, it's, it's irrefutable. You know, it's not, it's not an assumption. It's, it's what the, uh, uh, what the X's and O's are telling you. Exactly. Um, Now, from a cognitive science perspective, what is the role of movement and attention?
1: Well, it's interesting because I I became interested in this um, as I I train pre-service teachers. And so we talk a lot about attention as being critical for learning. And in fact, there is a lot of research that shows that the ability to focus attention is is a very strong predictor, one of the strongest predictors of success in school. But I think um, where movement comes in, and it's it's often... um, kind of put aside is that people tend to think of attention or focusing as um, going or going along with sitting still, which is actually not quite true if you look at the brain and how uh, the attention systems of the brain work. Attention and focus are active, very active processes. So sitting still is actually not conducive to the kind of deep attention and learning that we're looking for um, in the classroom. In fact, the the way that we humans evolved and for most of the time we've lived on Earth, we've been spending our days in movement outside hunting for food, avoiding predators, and such. And so our attention systems have developed within this context of survival. And as such, our brains are actually set up to operate the best in moving or changing environments.
0: Now, is this why the science is showing us or, or correct me if I'm wrong, is the science showing us that uh, learning movements such as, let's say, Tai Chi um, is going to help you acquire a language or any information better than um, uh, disc- uncoordinated movement? For example, you have random movement just running around and then you have coordinated movement. Does the research show us that the coordinated movement is more effective or is any movement um, beneficial? At an equal does, level
1: yeah it does seem to depend on what you're doing it seems as though certain movements um as you say that are coordinated with um other cognitive actions seem to have a boosting effect so something like gesturing is um a lot of us do that involuntarily as we're talking and explaining things we use our hands and so we're we're actually moving in concert with what we're saying. The gestures have a meaning. Even if we're inventing it as we go along, we're using the gestures to make our spoken language more clear. But it doesn't just help the receiver of that message in the example of gesturing. It helps the the thinker as well. So you can actually work out your thinking and your thinking um, emerges as you're acting it out in real time. So there's there's something um, across modalities of conveying information. And I think that's, that's some of the work that you're referencing with the Tai Chi example. So there are ways of coordinating our bodies with our minds that can actually um, provide benefits to both. So there's a, a, a gain in um, cross-modal communication or cross-modal expression, even if it's just for yourself. So you can help yourself understand something better, by by moving around. It's certainly true with perception. If you are going to catch a ball in the outfield and you take a few steps to run to to gauge it, it's going to help you to perceive visually where that ball is coming. So we, we work as a whole organism, the mind and the body, and the, the better that we can coordinate those things, the more power we have to understand, to communicate, to perceive.
0: Now I wish I had uh, met you 35 years ago because I think I would be a better outfielder um, <laughs> had I known this. <laughs>
1: right. Right.
0: Now, uh, can you explain the concept of brain breaks? I had a guest on previously who um, shared some of what um, the differences between the movement she does for learning and brain breaks, but what in general are brain breaks?
1: Well, we, our attention systems work in little bouts. So it's not in, in the brain and the circuitry. The way that it works is not a continuous stream, and that shouldn't be what we expect from learners. The average learner needs some kind of a shift in focus about every 10 minutes, and that doesn't mean a complete disengagement, but that might mean checking in physically with themselves, looking out the window, kind of orient, reorienting, and then, and then refocusing. So we're, we're constantly, again, back to that evolutionary um, history that we all have where we've evolved our brains have evolved in um, scanning their environment and orienting to things that might be important things to seek out and things to avoid so it certainly wouldn't be adaptive to be so engrossed in your work that you don't see you know an, an animal or a danger coming coming towards you so if we can if as teachers we can schedule in um, natural brain breaks in in the focus and enable students to, um, you know, do different kinds of orienting and different kinds of focusing for shorter spurts and then kind of seamlessly weave those into the next the next um, item at hand, I think we would have a lot better luck with asking students to to focus for long periods of time.
0: And I think this this is why the irony exists and um, you know sit still and pay attention. It's almost uh, counterproductive. <laughs>
1: Exactly, exactly. And so even little things like telling a joke or asking for a show of hands or asking um, students to to do a gesture or to to turn and speak to someone next to them, those kind of breaks are actually crucial for asking students to to, um, engage with information over long periods of time.
0: Well, now hearing you say this makes me think that it's it's quite possible that too many children are being referred to um evaluation for uh, hyperactivity because they may very well be doing exactly what they need to do to learn what is considered unacceptable or distraction.
1: Exactly. So the way that we've set up a system now is asking students and especially children to do something that goes completely against um, the way they've been built and the way that their brains have developed and, and evolved. So it's no wonder that we're seeing huge um, rise in Diagnoses of attention issues, um, ADHD. And, it, and interestingly enough, um, there really is a one to one correspondence in the, um, decrease in recess and the increase in diagnoses of, of ADHD. When my, when my dad was in school, they had three full hours of, of recess every day in the wow. 1950s. So there was jo- almost as much time spent outside running and free play as there was spent in the classroom. And, um, it's, it's increasingly gotten, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller, um, chunks of time that students are given research, recess time to the point where some schools are, are, um, eliminating recess altogether, which is a huge, huge problem, um, for attention and learning.
0: Yeah. And, and there may very well be, and I'm just, uh, speculating as a hypothesis that there's a direct correlation between our cutting physical education, research, art, and music, with our plummeting status academically on a world stage. We used to be number one, you know, back in the 60s, yeah. 70s, what have you, and now we're struggling in many areas to remain in a top 20. And I wonder if there's a direct correlation between the fact that we are cutting out the things that are truly essential because we, they're starting to be looked at, unfortunately, as if they were frivolous.
1: Absolutely. So. I would agree 100%. All, anything that we're taking out of the curriculum that's multimodal, that's allowing students to um, embody information and learning in multiple ways, those are the kinds of things that are going to catapult their learning and their attention. And as we cut and, and spend, you know, focus only on reading and math for elementary students, they're, they're really missing out on not just the, you know, learning of music or not just the, the physical benefits of, of PE, but what they're missing out on is being able to use their brains in through the multiple modalities. And there there are crossovers. So students who have musical education um, also have uh, better visual spatial skills. Also tend to do better in math. So we can we can see these correspondences, and it's no surprise because the brain is a holistic organ. I mean, they, these things work together. They're not isolated separate uh, topics of study.
0: Wow, and you know, I've uh, where I work, I've I've preached this because we have we're so far out of compliance and understanding of the importance of uh, just physical education at the elementary level. And um, I once made the statement that because they try all of these different um, strategies and different, you know, what's new today to try to get children's test scores to improve. And I once made the statement that if if all you did is come into compliance with the amount of movement that's that that the elementary students uh, need, that that alone, if you did nothing else but but added back more movement, you would see an improvement in academic performance. I think um, you're right.
1: I, I think the research shows, shows that as well.
0: Okay. Um, at this time, we need to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more right after this. You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Wendy Ostroff. We are discussing the importance of movement. And in the last quarter of the show, there are many, many more things I'd like to get to. Uh, Wendy, how can teachers use movement to encourage self-regulation?
1: Self-regulation is really important in when we think about movement, and telling children or students to sit still generally won't help them to to self-regulate. If we back up a little bit, you can think about um, when infants are born, they don't really know how to regulate their states of arousal, so caregivers have to soothe them, calm them down, let them know when it's time to be alert and awake, and infants start to learn those cues from the voices of their caregivers, which tell them um, what kind of physical state they're supposed to be in now. Children are, are in um, school. Children are away from their parents, oftentimes for the first time, and they're they're being asked to learn these strategies for gearing up when it's time to be up and and focusing in and calming down when it's when it's time to be calm. These are difficult things for the autonomic nervous system to do for kids. So, so I think teachers really need to model that to show show kids how to do it. And it, it seems like the best way is to actually be like play a student with with the children. So to show them the kinds of behaviors that they'd like to see in the learning situation. And then to help them with transition. So things like counting down from ten, letting children know that when we get to one then we're going to transition into something else. Um, giving children the time, more time to work on things that they don't feel like they're they're completed with yet. I think part of our our amped up um school day has to do with you know, accomplishing so much and getting so much done, which can be very disruptive for attention and self-regulation. Mm-hmm. So children really need to know that, that they can engage fully and, and co-create the knowledge, which for some children is going to take a lot, a lot longer. So I would say more, a little more free time, a little more time to make choices with what they're going to do and also to give children a, a context and a language for self-regulation for the teachers to say things like, you know, I I need I feel stressed or I'm having a hard time sitting down or I need a drink of water right now, or to ask the children themselves, how can you how can you change your state? You seem a little you seem a little amped up right now. What do you need to do? Do you need to take a walk um, around the hall and go get a drink of water and then come back and sit, or do you need to? Um, do something physical, you need to get up and you need to, you need to run around to, to teach the kids a metacognitive language so they can mm-hmm. start to express themselves and say, actually, um, you know, it seems like I'm having a hard time sitting still for this. Is there something else I could work on? Or, you know, now that it's, it's raining and we're in indoor recess, I still need to, to get up and move around. Would it be okay if I made a lap around the hallway and then, and then came back to sit? So if, if children can advocate for themselves and learn that language, um, they can be co-participants in the classroom environment.
0: And I actually, I fully agree with you, and I think what you initially said with regards to allowing students time to fully engage is so in line with Common Core. It's, it's doing less but going deeper as opposed to doing so much that we have kids trying to do today. Um right. and I yeah, I think if we give them more time to engage and, and have less on their plate, then they they will be able to go deeper and to uh truly understand the information, which is kind of what the common core is is, is getting at, especially with regards to math. You know, do less but go deeper.
1: Right, <laughs> right. Now- exactly. And give them a chance and give them the, the sense of responsibility for their own learning so where they can say, actually, I'm, I want to go back to that. That's something that I'm, I'm more interested in. And, and so, so there might be some options, you know, who wants mm-hmm. to work more on this and who want, who's ready to transition into something else. So they start to get a sense of, of their role in their own learning and the timing of their day.
0: Okay. And I have seen uh, teachers effectively use uh, some of those strategies, especially with regards to counting down in between transitions and what have you. So um, that's certainly a, a proven uh, a methodology. Uh, right. What are the physical implications of movement on the brain?
1: That's interesting. There's actually been a lot of research recently just on what what happens physically um, when you do things like aerobic activities. So when you increase the oxygen flow to your brain, you're actually impacting the cerebral structure. You're impacting the, the blood flow within the brain. Um, you're encouraging new neurons to grow and neurotransmitters to be produced and the production of more proteins um, that help the neurons that are there to strengthen um, connections and to survive. So in some recent studies, students who did aerobic exercise did better on cognitive measures, things that we tend to think of as not related to aerobics. And if you think Mm. about it, the children that are running and playing um, and are doing things that they were sort of born to do and getting out there and and moving around, um, they're stimulating their brains and they tend to show less impulsive behavior and increased um, ability to focus. So it's not just that something like recess um, gives you that break, but at the same time, recess is also... Strengthening the blood flow to your brain, so it's actually solidifying the connections um, that you're making on the neural level. And there's been lots of research on this um, recently. That if, if um, not just free play at recess, but also more exciting physical education programs, mm-hmm. programs that students can really get into. Um, there's one at um, Madison Junior High School in Illinois is a really good example. They're using a program called PE for Life. And what yes, they I'm do is they have yeah, students are engaging in really physical play and they're, they're doing rock climbing and they're doing dance dance revolution, they're riding gaming bikes and wearing heart monitors and things that the students are actually really into and they're seeing improvements across the board, but they're also they're seeing cognitive improvements and they're seeing improvements in um, just general inattention that students after a more intensive PE class can sit down and focus and, and do their math. And so there seems yeah. to be crossover physically in the brain, not just crossover in kind of the resources that they seem to have to for attention.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, in the spring here in New York, I assist with um, state testing, um, assist with delivery and, and collection of state testing. And it drives me crazy to see students sitting quietly or, or, or sitting and trying to read first thing in the morning as if that's going to... Prepare them for the exam that they're about to take, the three hour <laughs> exam. And I keep, I, yeah, I keep telling teachers that's the worst thing they could do. I said, if anything, let them jog around the school. Let them do jumping jacks. Let them move and then give them a couple of minutes to settle down in a classroom and, and focus on the exam. They would likely do much better. And it, it sounds like you're, you're, uh, uh, in agreement with that from, from the research.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That that, that, that movement is going to give them the resources that they need to then to then sit down and focus. So yeah.
0: Okay. Now I we we're, we're, we're running short on time, but I definitely wanted to um, give you an opportunity to speak about your 2012 book. I believe that was published by ASCD, Understanding How Young Children Learn, Bringing the Science of Child Development to the Classroom. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book.
1: Yeah. This this book is really my response to um, having trained teachers for many years in um, the science of child development and realize that a lot of these things um, don't necessarily make their way into the classroom. So there's a real disconnect between the research that's happening in the lab on the learning and the brain and the, the curriculum design and the pedagogy um, that's playing out in the classroom. And that's that's mostly because um, we're of a translation issue so that all this science is happening and and teachers aren't getting access to that—the science that's coming out of the lab on on the brain and learning. So I, it's really become my passion to take the research from the lab and and make it available and accessible and part of of teacher training, so that teachers can have those tools at their fingertips and the latest knowledge about how the brain works. So when they're designing their classes, they can have the brain in mind and not be working um, working at cross purposes and and provide the best, really the best situation for learners and children to benefit from the educational system.
0: Well, there's that, there's, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, and, and, and sometimes I do feel like the, the only voice uh, in my particular area uh, trying to advocate and sometimes hearing a voice from the outside uh, people are more apt to respond to us like being a parent where if you speak to your own child, they, they can't hear you. But as soon as your neighbor says the same exact thing,
1: <laughs>
0: you know, it's like the first time they right. ever heard it. You know, so, exactly. um, you know, uh, although you're 3,000 miles away out there in, uh, uh, California, I would, I, I would, it would be great to have you come to our district on a, a staff development day and share the same information, uh, because I, I think they're more apt to, uh, hear it as opposed to having heard me. <laughs> Right, <laughs> say, right, say say exactly. similar things so long.
1: Exactly. Well, that would be wonderful.
0: Excellent. We have been speaking with Wendy Ostroff, cognitive scientist, developmental psychologist, and author of Understanding How Young Children Learn. Excuse me, Understanding How Young People Learn. Wendy, where can listeners go to purchase copies of your book?
1: Um, my book can be purchased on the ASCD website as well as um, Amazon.com and most major um, book distributors.
0: Excellent. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, It's much appreciated. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.